Hello and welcome to 90 Second Narratives. I'm Sky Michael Johnston, the host and creator of 90 Second Narratives. This is the podcast's fourth Season of Stories episode, which brings together all of the individual stories from a season into one special long episode. The theme for Season 4 has been health and wellness, and all of today's stories relate to that theme in some way. Two words that seem to be ubiquitous when discussing health are diet and exercise. Our first two stories offer striking portrayals of the historical importance of diet and exercise. Our first storyteller is Dr. Japreet Verdi with the story, Do You Bant? Diet and Deafness in Victoria, England. Her story reveals the origins of a popular diet and phrase in a medical treatment for deafness. Then, Dr. Ava Perkis's story, Black Women's Exercise at Greater Bethel Gymnasium, recalls an episode in the 19, in 1920s Chicago when the creation of a physical space for exercise became an occasion for racial suppression. William Banting was the British funeral director who, at age 66, was the beast weighing 202 pounds at 5 foot 5 and needed a truss to hold an umbilical rupture in place. His weight was so troublesome that he could not tie his shoes and had to walk down the stairs backwards to limit the pain of weight on his knees and ankles. He tried losing the weight, but his efforts were in vain. In 1862, after his eyesight and hearing started to fail, Banting visited the all surgeon William Harvey at the Royal Dispensary for Diseases of the Ear in London. Upon examining Banting's ears and assessing his obese stature, Harvey concluded that the undertaker's deafness was a symptom of fat deposits lodged in the eustachian tube. Recalling his research on how starch negatively affects the production of insulin, Harvey advised Banting to overhaul his diet, explaining that as the pounds dropped, his hearing would be improved. So Banting abstained from bread, butter, sugar, beer, and potatoes, and within a few months he dropped 46 pounds and his hearing began to miraculously improve. Do you bant? then became a fashionable way of asking whether you were dieting. And Banting's diet remains ingrained in our culture. We just call it the low-carb diet. In 1923, a group of black women from the south side of Chicago did what many women do when they want to lose weight. They joined a gym. In the era of Jim Crow segregation, however, they lacked access to first-rate white gymnasiums and other spaces of fitness like YWCA facilities, pools, parks, and playgrounds. The women, instead, turned to their neighborhood church where members opened Greater Bethel Gymnasium. Black church members, including nurses, stenographers, club women, and the girl reserves of the local black YWCA got fit through classes in German and Swedish gymnastics. The Chicago Defender, the most prominent black newspaper in the country at that time, remarked on the stakes of this exercise initiative. The paper encouraged the women's physical activity, not only because of personal health benefits, but because the quote, physically unfit, prevented the U.S. from being, as the paper put it, a really great nation. 
The defender explained that obesity and inactivity compromise the country's ability to compete globally, especially during World War I, and tied this kind of intentional exercise to notions of good citizenship. Black women understood keenly the relationship between physical and civic fitness, and so too did their white oppressors. A year after the unveiling of Greater Bethel Gymnasium, suspected KKK members destroyed the church by setting it on fire. The church, including the gym, was completely demolished. This story represents the breadth and ingenuity of Black women's health activism in the early 20th century. It also demonstrates the intractable barriers and racist antagonisms they encountered as they sought health, fitness, and success in a nation that seldom regarded them as fit citizens. What vivid representations of the tangled connections between diet and exercise and society. In both of these stories, diet and exercise are so much more than individual lifestyles. They show that interconnections in society impact the most intimate aspects of people's lives and bodies, for better or for worse. Well, historically, childhood has been a particularly precarious stage of life for humans in terms of health and wellness. Our next two stories offer, offer insightful perspectives on the historical challenges of caring for people during childhood and the biological and cultural factors that influence the well-being of young ones. Here is Dr. Susan P. Mattern with the story, Menopause and the Mongols, followed by Dr. Crystal Lynn Webster with the story, Stephen Ricks and Childhood in the Antebellum North. Genghis Khan's mother was abandoned by her clan with seven small children in 1170. Her husband was dead. Her oldest son, who would go on to conquer much of Asia, was nine. Two of the younger boys were from her husband's second wife. Hoalun supported her family by foraging for wild foods until the children were old enough to form alliances and to begin to take revenge on their enemies. When Genghis divided up his realm in 1207, in recognition of her hard work, he gave her 10,000 subjects and a bodyguard 4,000 strong. Genghis and his brothers had many wives, and in the course of the brutal Mongol conquests, they captured and raped many women. Today, according to some geneticists, about 8% of men in Central Asia, or 16 million men overall, are their direct male line descendants. Hoalun was still a young woman when she was widowed, but through her sons, she was one of the most reproductively successful people in history. None of her children would have survived were it not for her extraordinary efforts in her post-reproductive years. And without the brutal values of vengeance and loyalty that she transmitted, they would not have united the Mongols and founded the largest land empire in world history. I like the story of Hoalun because it illustrates that women have menopause for a reason. In our evolutionary past, it was the everyday contributions of older women freed of childbearing that helped their descendants and others in their group to survive and thrive. Because grandmothers fed their grandchildren, built huts, dug roots, hunted lizards, taught skills, made clothes, gave advice, and treated wounds, their genes multiplied and menopause evolved. Nature's gift to humans of post-reproductive life stage remains with us today. We should be grateful. This is a little story about a little child. 
1822, the Philadelphia Shelter for Colored Children opened as the first formalized private orphanage to admit African-American children. The orphanage was run by Quakers who reacted to the growing population of African-Americans who faced poverty and destitution, many who were newly emancipated in a city with one of the most active free black communities in the country. In 1832, a young boy, Stephen Ricks, and his three brothers were brought to the orphanage. At six years old, Stephen was a gifted child with the ability to recount from memory facts and figures with incredible precision. Tragically, just two years after he entered the orphanage, he died of an unknown illness. Disease spread rapidly within the small space of the home, magnified by the treatment the children received by doctors who believed African Americans were more vulnerable to disease and death. In the end, Stephen left behind a letter to another child, Mary, in which he told her heaven would be his ultimate shelter and home. Stephen Rick's short life tells us much about the history of childhood, African Americans in the North, and medicine in the 19th century. He left behind material objects from his life, a rarity for archives of childhood, particularly for black children. His mother was one of many black women who attempted to balance the transition out of slavery to freedom while caring for her children. And his illness illustrates the ways in which doctors' pseudoscientific perceptions of biological racial difference impacted their treatment of African Americans. For some, orphanages were a site of safety, care, and charitable aid. And for others, they meant family separation, illness, and freedom unfulfilled. As Dr. Webster just alluded to in her story, the science of medicine and healthcare also developed historically within specific cultural context, and in certain cases, those contexts were inflected by racist ideas. Dr. Arlene Marsha Tuckman examines an example of this in her story, Diabetes, Science, and Race in the Early 20th Century. Then, in another perspective on the actors who shaped the science of medicine, Dr. Lon A. Lee shares a portrait of one woman who influenced fields in medical science and the history of medicine in the story, Finding Lu Wu Zhen in the Archive of Chinese Medical Science. In 1916, Elliot P. Joslin, the foremost diabetes specialist in the United States, insisted that the frequency with which diabetes occurs in the Jewish race is proverbial. In making this claim, Joslin was giving voice to a widely held belief in the early 20th century that Jewish people had the highest rate of diabetes of any population in the United States, and that Black and Native peoples had the lowest. Physicians at the time explained these disparities by drawing on the tenets of scientific racism, that is, the conviction that distinct races existed that could be ranked from the least to the most evolved. Thus, in 1920, at the 14th annual meeting of the Southern Medical Association, physicians who attended Isaac Lehman's talk on diabetes mellitus in the Negro race learned that Jews suffered from diabetes because of the frequency of nervous strain, mental shock, and worry in their lives. The low rate of diabetes in the Negro race is because their lives are, to a very great degree, free from these influences, or, as another physician commented, among all people beyond the pale of culture, diabetes is very rare. Such beliefs demonstrate that medical explanations have long trafficked in racial and racist stereotypes, 
In doing so, they perpetuate the belief that health disparities can best be explained by differences in the bodies and behaviors of those who are sick. There were dissenters in the past, as there are today, who insisted that structural racism and social determinants of health played a greater role in determining who gets sick, but their voices have always struggled to be heard. Malta was warm. The afternoon sun stretched across the island as Lu Guijun walked ahead. She turned around and looked at the camera, her fashionably large glasses covering most of her face. She clutched a cream-colored purse, which matched her mid-heel loafers, which matched the daisies on her blue and purple shirt dress. Lu had just turned 70, and she enjoyed a playful wardrobe when she arrived in Malta to explore its rocky shoreline and scale its limestone walls for a view of the Mediterranean Sea. Lu Guijun was never seen this way. In fact, she was rarely seen. For most of her life, she didn't want to be known and deferred to her more famous collaborators despite her own accomplishments. Lu had trained as a medical scientist during a period with very few Chinese female scientists. As one of the few, she navigated identities that were national, social, political, professional, and gendered. She had come from a liberal nationalist family, but sympathized with communist ideals. She identified as Confucian, but participated in Christian rituals. When Lu traveled from China to Britain in 1937, she would become one of the first Chinese women to receive a doctorate in biochemistry at Cambridge University. When she retired from science in 1956, she would become one of the most knowledgeable historians of medicine in China, writing for an English-language audience. When asked to share her biography, Lu once said, Let them work it out after I die. And so we try. Lu had created one of the most important archives on Chinese medical science, but she also hid herself, her person, in the archive. She wrote herself out of popular narrative. And if we read in between the lines, in the margins, in the photographs, we might be able to imagine ourselves into her world on a beach in Malta. Today's final three stories take place against the backdrop of plague, epidemic, and pandemic in the 17th century, 18th century, and the current global situation. The three stories are Renaissance Women as Frontline Healers, told by Dr. Sharon T. Strachia, Intimate Exchanges and Public Health in Colonial Mexico, told by Dr. Paul Ramirez, and The History of Nursing in the Context of COVID-19, told by Dr. Barbara Mann Wall. Bubonic plague ravaged Italy in the summer of 1630. Household healers scurried to make preventive remedies that would ward off this dread disease. Among them was Maria Celeste Galilei, daughter of the famed astronomer Galileo. Possessing skilled hands and an inquiring mind, Maria Celeste worked as a convent apothecary, making medicines to treat the poor and other members of her religious community. She maintained an affectionate relationship with her father, writing him frequent letters and copying his scientific manuscripts in an elegant script. As plague threatened their city, she sent Galileo two small jars of a homemade remedy to safeguard his health. 
One contained a thick mixture made of dried figs, nuts, and herbs bound together with honey. Maria Celeste advised him to take a dose about the size of a walnut every morning before breakfast, followed by some good wine, which she claimed was a marvelous defense against plague. Happily, both father and daughter survived the outbreak unscathed. This vignette illustrates how Renaissance women from all walks of life served as frontline healers who performed much of the day-to-day work of caregiving throughout this period. Yet their practices have either been naturalized as women's work, which makes their labor less visible, or coded as a charitable activity, which empties it of medical meaning. Consequently, scholars have both undercounted and undervalued the healthcare services that Renaissance women provided to household and community. To understand the relationship between health and society in these centuries, we first need to redefine what counts as medical work. Toward the end of the 18th century, the Spanish crown developed a policy of strict quarantine whenever an epidemic broke out in its American colonies. As a result, in 1796, as local administrators began reporting outbreaks of smallpox in what's now Mexico, royal agents set up public health cordons to keep people contained within their villages and away from markets. In addition, these officials ordered that any infected individuals, including children, be separated in isolation hospitals, and that these buildings be founded in smaller towns and villages where they didn't already exist. In the south of Mexico, where the coastline tapers to form an isthmus called Tehuantepec, one of these infirmaries was being prepared in a village called Huichicobi when two women confronted their priest about an apparent oversight in the official policy. These women were widows who had volunteered to care for the isolated children, and they wanted to know who would feed the children when they needed to eat if their mothers weren't going to be allowed inside to see them. To further illustrate that they didn't have mother's milk to give, they lifted their weepiness, their blouses, and bore their breasts, which the priest described as wrinkled pouches. When he claimed to know how to make a milk substitute with warm corn gruel and beetles, the widows reportedly replied in their native tongue, they'd been speaking broken Spanish until then, who knows if that is true. The episode leaves us with a lot of questions, in part because the priest's report is the only record we have of it. Were the women being playful, teasing a male representative of the church by showing their bodies? How familiar was the gesture meant to be? Whatever the widows intended by their words and gestures, women played a central role in the implementation of public health policy, often by expressing common-sense knowledge. In this instance, that young, unweaned children might starve under the official program without additional precautions. While male merchants and village elders filed formal written complaints about the devastating effects of the quarantine on commerce, the widows give us a view of other concerns that were not only multilingual, multi-ethnic, and cross-cultural, but also less formal, more familiar, and everyday. A transition away from quarantines and toward immunization took place around this time, and it was very much a product of these sorts of intimate exchanges. As the novel coronavirus began to spread in the United States, People across the country have turned to historians for crucial insights about how history informs present-day disease and nursing. 
I suggest that much of the way nurses have reacted today during the time of COVID has been shaped by the past. Let's go back to the early 20th century when official nurse training schools were expanding. A textbook for nurses written in 1915 taught that if a patient developed an infectious disease, they were put to bed in a restricted area with their nurses segregating along with them. Other nursing textbooks in the 1920s taught about causal organisms, resistance to disease, general and specific measures for disinfection of doors, window handles, clothing, utensils, and hands. After the 1940s, nursing students learned about medicines such as sulfa drugs and antibiotics. Nurses read about carriers of disease, even by those who were asymptomatic and they carried out regulations that the state deemed important to control disease, including quarantine and wearing masks. One book written in 1952 noted, adequate scientific advice should be obtained. Today, in addition to highly technical care, nurses do these same things as they treat and prevent infections and save lives. But nurses themselves also need assistance. After caring for yellow fever survivors in 1878, one nurse pleaded, I am sick and starving and in self-defense will have to leave. Come at once. This must not be the case for nurses today. And now in the final days of 2020, Dr. Wall's concluding words are certainly a fitting admonition and appropriate place to end this episode. Let's keep the well-being of our nurses and all their fellow healthcare providers in view and be diligent to support them. Thank you to everyone saving lives and even caring for those we lose in these difficult times. And thank you for joining me on today's historical journey on the theme of health and wellness, courtesy of our excellent group of storytellers. 90 Second Narratives will be back next week with the start of a new season for the new year. Our theme will be Icons, and each episode will feature a story about an iconic individual. Please come along for the next season of Little Stories with Big Historical Significance. <laughs>